Anyway, here we go. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are uh, wrapping up today with day number 89. Day number 89 in the Bible reading calendar. This is uh, from Joshua 15.20. It's going to finish all of chapter 15 and then cover chapter 16 and chapter 17. So we're going to have more land allotments, just like uh, the title says. Before we do get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, again, this is our privilege and blessing to assemble today. We thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the abundant blessings, grace upon grace, that you have supplied to us on this day. And now, Father, as we have our final session, we uh, commit to you our thinking. Keep us awake, keep us alert, and we uh, give you the praise and glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I was telling a story before we started the recording about Hacksaw Ridge. And the, uh, the, if you've never seen it, you've got to go see it. It's a true story based upon a conscientious objector, but he serves as a medic. He won't touch a weapon, won't carry a weapon, but he serves as a medic in World War II, and it's just it's amazing. And the movie presented it left out many of the true stories that were included in the book. And the, uh, the reason why was with the thought that no one's going to believe that this is possibly a true story, but it is, there are eyewitnesses to the truth of what's uh, recorded in the book. So anyway, I do recommend it. All right, day 89, more land allotments. We've seen so far the tribe of Judah received their lots. Now we have some cities that are mentioned as we move on to verses 21 and following to the end of chapter 15. Cities are denoted. 29 towns plus their villages in the Negev, that's the south land, is uh, indicated here between verses 21 and 32. There's actually, if you want to count them, 36 towns that are actually named in this passage. However, when we do get to chapter 19, we're going to see that seven of these are later given to Simeon. So that's a quirk of how the the process went. And uh, if it seems less than ideal, if you think you would have done it a different way, um, you know, that's okay. But this is the way Joshua did it when he was organizing these cities with uh, Eliezer the high priest. So we'll just take it as it's being described here. So the cities at the extremity of the tribe of the sons of Judah toward the border of Edom in the south were Kabzeel and Eder and Jugur and Cana and Demona and Adada and Kadesh and Hazar and Ithnan and Ziph and Tullam and Beloth. All these places, okay? They're hard to pronounce, and I apologize if I'm butchering the, uh, the Hebrew. But they're in here. They're in the Bible for a reason. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And if you, if you start to think that Ziph and Telem and Beeloth, they just don't do anything for you, um, think again, okay? Just stop and consider how precise God is being here, how uh, fastidious, how diligent, how, uh, you know, put your adjective in there as you like. Um, he's being so detail-focused down to the, the cities and the villages and, and all the, every square inch of this land that he's stipulating. And to me, I find that to be a remarkable encouragement. This, this shows me that God is not only sovereign and in charge of a vast scope of the rise and fall of empires and whatnot, but he's also focused on individuals and the hairs of your head are counted and all the, the particular details that go into it. Also... 
I would highlight the fact that when we're looking at a map like this, when we're mapping out these divisions, when we realize this is the real world we're talking about here, okay? This is not Middle Earth. This is not uh, Narnia. This is not some fictional land that's invented by, you know, uh, a creative uh, mind of, of uh, fiction. This is the world we live in. The, the, the dirt they were walking on is dirt we could walk on if we went over there and walked on their dirt, okay? It's still there to this day. And as we see where, you know, Israel sits in the Middle East and we can see where uh, these things t- transpire and we see that, you know, much of our focus is up here right now in Russia and Ukraine. We're talking about the real world. We're talking about, you know, the, the world in which we live. And, and this is what we deal with. We deal with reality. And the land grant that was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, the land grant that was promised through Moses, the land grant that was not only provided via Joshua, but they actually mapped it out and walked it out and, and did the, the measurements and the land and the, the legwork and all of that. Okay? This is real land. And this is God's real promise. And so we, we can identify with this. I think it's fundamental too that we, recognize that this is their stewardship, their economy, their uh, place in the plan of God. It is not the church's stewardship or the church's economy or the church's place in the plan of God. We are not an earthly people. We are a heavenly people. And so the day we got saved is the day that we were transferred out of death into life is the day that we became heavenly citizens in the royal family of God. And so on that basis, we are partakers of a heavenly calling. We are recipients of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And it has nothing to do with these plots of land we're looking at here in the book of Joshua. All right? So to me, one of the saddest things about all of replacement theology, and it goes back to Augustine and maybe earlier, when we're talking about the church as replacing Israel, is fundamentally just calling God a liar. And calling God a big waste of time. Because he's sure written a whole lot of chapters here that become immediately irrelevant if he just throws it all away and says, okay, forget Israel, we'll start over with the church. And uh, no, this is, this is real. This is real, this is eternal, this will be their land. And maybe the biggest question of all is, how does this land survive the destruction of the heavens and the earth by fire? So that when he makes the, all things new with the new heavens and the new earth in which there is no longer any sea, then obviously something's happening out here. <laughs> and this land, though, is still the land that God has promised. So those are some of the things that we have to deal with as we reach those, uh, those other passages. Anyway, I hope that helps. And uh, if, if this is boring and tedious, if this is, if this is echoing the shadows of dim Leviticus memories, then uh, we'll get through it today and we'll be, we'll be past it. So, so relax on that. All right, where did I leave off? Hazor Hadadath, and Kiriath Hezron, that is Hazor, and Amam, and Shemah, and Moladah, and Hazar Gadah, and Heshmon, and Beth Pellet, and Hazor Shul, and Beersheba, hey, I know that one, and Biziothiah, and Balah, and Lim, and Ezem, and Eltolad, and Chesel, and Horma, and Ziklag, hey, we know Ziklag, okay? That comes up several times in the uh, Life of David study and Mad Manna, and San Santa. I think some of these towns help with, uh, give it some Texas twang. And, and All right. 
Where did I leave off? Mad Manna, San Santa, Lebaoth, Shalim, Ain, and Rimon in all 29 cities with their villages. Like we say, um, because seven of them are later given to Simeon. We'll study that when we get to chapter 19. In the lowland, then we have um, Eshtaol and Zorah and Azna and Zanoa and Enganim and Tapua and Enam, Jarmuth and Adullam, Soko and Azekah and Shareim and Edithiam and Gedera and Gidothiam, 14 cities with their villages. That gets us through verse 36. We're reading now this section here where we're detailing 42 towns plus their villages in the Shephelah. What is the Shephelah, do you ask? The Shephelah is kind of the region in between the hill country and the, the coastal plain. So sometimes it's thought of as foothills. All right, so we got hill country that kind of runs north and south right up in here. That's hill country. And then the back side of the hill country is the, is the wilderness, kind of tucked in between the, the hill country and the Dead Sea. And then uh, lower down in elevation as you move west, you're not quite hill country anymore, but you're not quite coastal plains yet. You're in the foothills. You're in the rolling foothills and the, uh, the rolling foothills are called the Shephelah. And that's where many of the struggles took place. The Shephelah kind of served as the, the, uh, the no man's land, so to speak. It kind of served, the Philistines dominated the coastal plains, and their, their chariots were good for that. But uh, the chariots, they didn't want to take the chariots up through the, the, the hill country. They didn't want to take it even through the, the, the borderland there. They didn't want to take it through the foothills of the hill country. That was bad enough. But to go all the way up to the hill country was was problematic for a, a chariot division. So the Shephelah became a place. And then the, the number of valleys that went through the Shephelah were easily identified. And if, uh, if, if Pharisees, if, not Pharisees, if Philistines were going to be bringing chariots through those valleys, uh, then, you know, you could spot that and defend them as necessary. Like the Valley of Giants is, is one such locality. All right, so these are the uh, 42 towns plus their villages in the Shephelah. And that takes us from verse 33 down to verse 47. So I forget where I left off here, but we have all these Lachish and Boscoth and Eglon and Cabin and Lamas and Chitlish and Gedaroth, Beth Dagon and Nama and Makeda, 16 cities with their villages. Libna and Ether and Ishan and Iphthah and Ishan and Nezib and Kila. Ooh, Kila's interesting. What happened in Kila? All right, we'll come back to that. And Akzib and Merashah, nine cities and their villages. Kila is, there's a, a marvelous episode. David was a fugitive. David was on the run. And he and his man, he had a band of, of ne'er-do-wells. And they, they went and they hid out in Kila. But then a report came to King Saul. Saul knew that David and his men were in Keilah. And so Saul gets his troops together. He's going to go, basically he's going to go flatten Keilah. He's going to go surround Keilah and demand that if Keilah wants to live, then Keilah's going to give up David and, and Saul will let the city live. That's, that's the, the episode that happens there. And the doctrine that comes with that. I've got to tell you, the doctrine that comes with this episode, because David inquires of the Lord. And he asked the Lord, he says, Lord, if I stay here, will the men of Keilah deliver me up to King Saul? And the Lord says, yes, 
If you stay here, they will deliver you up to King Saul. I mean, it is, it is no doubt about it. God in his foreknowledge knows every future and every potential future of if you stay here, this is the future that will result. If you stay here, if you are still in this city when Saul surrounds it and demands your head, they'll give you up in a heartbeat. Okay? And the Lord was very clear on that to David. So what did David do? David skipped town. He grabbed his men and said, all right, we're out of here. And they fled. And so Saul's still on his way. He hears that David had fled. So Saul turns around and goes back home. Saul never got to Keilah with his armies. But the doctrine that's taught there is so profound because it's talking about a counterfactual. It's talking about a potential future. It's saying, if I stay here, what will their decision be? And, it, and God has full foreknowledge of that. I don't think he gets all the credit he gets. The omniscience of God means that God knows everything and everything is more than you think it is. Because everything is bigger than just everything that is. Everything includes everything that might be. And everything that actually never will be, but it could be if other things were different. God knows those too. And if that doesn't blow your mind... Um, we'll, we'll spend some more time on these concepts, okay? Because uh, there are branches of theology that really, really struggle with this. They deny this. They reject this. And, they, and when they absolutely reject this, they're actually defending a theology that is in defiance of the plain reading of, of the text. Because the, um, they define foreknowledge. God knows what he knows ahead of time because his sovereignty has decreed them to be. And they limit what God knows. God only knows the future because he decreed the future. And so they have a very diminished omniscience. They have actually, they don't have an omniscience. They have a, a partial omniscience that God only knows what he decided he was going to do. And that he's apparently ignorant of anything that might be or could be or would be different if other things were different. And it is such a sad, deficient view of of omniscience that I wanted to highlight that today I'll keep on highlighting that and uh, anytime you see the name Kila there that should just jump out at you as a, a tremendous venue to discuss counterfactuals to discuss parallel universe and timelines and, and uh, what if scenarios and if this is different what happens down the road there we don't know but God does he knows every single uh, alternative fork in the road of the, of the timeline from Alpha to Omega every step of the way all right, so that's Keilah. And Oxib and Marashah, nine cities with their villages. Ekron with its towns and villages. From Ekron even to the sea, all that were by the side of Ashdod with their villages. How about Ashdod and its towns and villages? That's Philistine territory. Sadly, they won't conquer it, not for a long, long time. In fact, um, even in David's day, it remained a thorn because the, the Philistines were filled there. Gaza, its towns and its villages. This is the same Gaza that we read about in the news every now and then. It's the same Gaza that's part of the, the Palestinian territories of, the, of um, the, uh, the terrorist organization that Yasser Arafat founded. Its towns and villages as far as the brook of Egypt and the Great Sea, even its coastline. Again, we have this Nahal, this wadi, this brook of Egypt. Is that the Nile? Is that a branch of the Nile? Is that the easternmost pelagic branch of the Nile? Or is it this, this wadi, this dry creek that has water in it, uh, you know, six days a year, but it's usually this dry creek bed uh, most of the year? 
Is that the border that, uh, that God has promised? All right, so those are the towns and villages in the Shephelah. Then we have 38 towns and their villages in the hill country itself. Verses 48 through 60. In the hill country, Shamir and Jatir and Soko and Dana and Kiryath Sanaa, that is Debir, okay? Older name, newer name, same place. And Anab and Eshtamo and Anim and Goshen and Holon and Gilo, 11 cities with their villages. Arab and Duma and Eshin and Janum and Beth Tapua and Afika and Humta and Kiryath Arba, that is Hebron. Talked about that already. And Zior, nine cities with their villages. Maon, Carmel, and Ziph, and Judah, and Jezreel, and Jokdim, and Genoa, and Cain, and Gibeah, and Timnah, ten cities with their villages. Halhul, Beth Zur, and Gedor, and Merath, and Bethanoth, and Eltakon, six cities with their villages. And Kiriath Baal, that is Kiriath Jerim, and Rabbah, two cities with their villages. By the way, if some of these overlap, if some of these duplicate, that's not a problem. I mean, when you consider the meaning of some of these places, uh, you know, Bethlehem is house of bread, or you have other names, you know, Woody. How many places are called Woody, right? How many places are called Brushy Creek? You know, and, and, and you wonder, you know, you can't call this place Brushy Creek. We already have 500 other Brushy Creeks all across Texas and the South and wherever. Well, I mean, it is what it is. Because people got there and they said, man, there's a lot of brush in this creek. And what should we call it? Let's confuse people. Okay? And that's not new. This has been happening going back to Bible times. In the wilderness, Beth Arabah, Midden, and Sikaka. Some of these can get in trouble. I'll get emails. Let's see. Okay, it's the Kaka. And Nibshan in the city of Salt and in Gedi, six cities with their villages. Now as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. Do you know what this tells me? This tells me that the book of Joshua was written before King David. This was written before because King David conquered Jerusalem. He took, he, he got rid of the Jebusites. He invaded, he took it, he um, made it his capital. It becomes the city of David from that moment forward. And so, since this verse says the Jebusites still live in the midst of the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day, that tells you, it shows you part of the timeline in which we kind of limit the potential authorship uh, range, date range, and, uh, and because of that then we limit the potential authors who were alive at that time who could have written this, uh, this particular text. I think the bulk of the text was, was written by Joshua before he died, but then the, the final version of the text where many of this until these day comments and other things, also every, every detail after Joshua dies, some of the, the, you know, the second draft of the book of Joshua was obviously somebody that followed him, not Joshua himself. All right, so that's chapter 15. See, was there anything else there? Yeah, the Jebusites in Jerusalem remained as a snare. Although at one point the city was ravaged, we're going to see early in the book of Judges that they set fire to the city. 
couldn't conquer it, couldn't, uh, couldn't take it over, but they just set it on fire and fled, and the Jebusites put out the fire and kept living there. Jerusalem was on the border between Judah and Benjamin, which tribe was also unsuccessful in driving out the Jebusites. We'll have a reference to that that's made in Judges one twenty one. The sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. I mean, you would think that the Jebusites were kind of, you know, stuck between a rock and a hard place. They had two tribes. Both wanted to wipe them out and, and, and take over Jerusalem. And, uh, and neither one could. Jerusalem will finally be taken by David and made into his capital. You can read about that in 2 Samuel, also 1 Chronicles 11. This is kind of a fun story here too. Don't mind taking a look at that. All right. Then David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, and the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, were there. And the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you shall not enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David had, David had said, a bit of a flashback, whoever strikes down a Jebusite first shall be chief and commander. Wow, so this is like a job interview. It's like an audition. You know, we're going to go take the city, but guess what? A bonus prize, it's like a door prize. The first one to, to take down a Jebusite gets to become the, the commander. And so this is how Joab scored the job. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, went up first, so he became chief. Joab, I don't think, was even saved. Joab's a terrible character when you get into the life of, of David's study. And, um, and yet, this is how he scored his spot and uh, won the day. So David dwelt in the stronghold, therefore it's called the city of David. He built the city all around, from the millow even to the surrounding area. And Joab repaired the rest of the city. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. Even picking out a loser like Joab to be um, his, uh, his commanding general. Other cities besides Jerusalem will also be a thorn, and uh, we're going to see that in uh, Judges one nineteen. Some of the places they could not drive out, they had the iron chariots, and they, and they really just didn't have the spiritual obedience to walk by faith and trust God in, in the provision that God had uh, already made clear. All right, so that should be, is that the rest of chapter 15? Let's see. Let's read the rest of chapter 15. I think there's more details in here. Yeah, I'm surprised. This is not good. How did I leave out this uh, Caleb stuff that's in here? All right, let's look at this Caleb stuff. This is good. We just saw the, um, the offer that David made and how Joab scored his position as the commander. Um, we have something similar here when Caleb is attacking um, Hebron. He gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the sons of Judah according to the command of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is, Hebron. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak. This 85-year-old warrior, look what he's doing. Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai, the children of Anak. Then, he's not done yet, he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath-sephir. And Caleb said, the one who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it, 
I will give him Aksa, my daughter, as a wife. So now at a certain point, you know, I wonder, what's, is, he, is he tired? Is he just killed three giants and he's going to let somebody else take a crack at this one? Or, or does he decide, you know, uh, now that the entire tribe has seen what, uh, what Caleb was like, now it's time to find a, a, a suitable uh, a husband for his daughter. I mean, imagine having Caleb as your father-in-law, okay? Imagine this, uh, this 85-year-old man that just killed three giants and, uh, and you're going to marry his daughter? No pressure there, right? So, the one who attacks Curious Suffer and captures it, well, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, as a wife. So Othniel, the son of Canaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it. So this technically makes him a nephew. Does that mean that he's going to marry his cousin if he's going to be marrying Caleb's daughter? Well, again, it's not clear what Caleb's actual parentage actually is. Is he adopted into this clan? Is he biologically related to them or not? What's the, what is the connection here? We'll probably gain a few more glimpses when we get to the book of Judges, because guess who one of the first judges of Israel is? It's Othniel. So he's going to come back onto, onto the center stage in the early chapters of uh, the book of Judges. But Othniel, the son of Canaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it, so he gave him Aksah, his daughter, as a wife. And uh, we learned something about her. She uh, has different requests on this. Came about when she came to him, she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. So she alighted from the donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said, give me a blessing since you have given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And this is the inheritance of the tribes of the sons of Judah according to their families. All right, so that's the little bit of Caleb family that happens there with his daughter and his son-in-law. All right, well, that gets us to chapter 16. The second lot for land distribution fell to the tribe of Joseph. And although the Percopy heading says Ephraim, uh, the text itself says the lot for the sons of Joseph. Now we're going to realize that this includes Ephraim and Manasseh, and we're also going to realize that this only includes the half of Manasseh that's on the western side of the Jordan. Because remember, the other half of Manasseh is on the eastern side of the Jordan. So we're going to come up here and we're going to see um, Ephraim in blue. And just as a matter of proportion, that's West Manasseh in yellow. Yeah. Didn't that jump out at you? Jumps out at me. And then East Manasseh in the the glorious purple over there in the top right. So when you combine that yellow and that purple, Manasseh scored huge on just the acreage alone. And then Ephraim got the blue. Just want just keep that fixed in your mind, because they're going to grumble about how small their land grant is, and they're going to they're going to kind of allege theoretically that Joshua's not treating them right, that he's showing favorites or whatever, which is kind of dumb because Joshua is from Ephraim. Maybe they thought that he was going to overbalance it even more. Who knows? So. 
The lot for the sons of Joseph went from the Jordan at Jericho to the waters of Jericho on the east into the wilderness going up from Jericho through the hill country to Bethel. Went from Bethel to Luz and continued to the border of the Archites at Ataroth. and went down westward to the territory of the Japhletites as far as the territory of lower Beth Horon even to Gezer and it ended at the sea. The sons of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim received their inheritance. All right, so uh, verses 5 through 10 is going to take us through the Ephraim territory. And then when we get into chapter 17, we'll deal with the Manasseh land grant. That's on the western side of the Jordan. So this was the territory of the sons of Ephraim. According to their families, the border of their inheritance eastward was Adaroth Adar, as far as upper Beth Horon. And the border went westward at Mikmetath on the north. And the border turned about eastward to Tanath Shaloh and continued beyond it to the east of Genoa. It went down from Genoa to Adaroth and to Narah, then reached Jericho and came out at the Jordan. From Tapua, the border continued westward to the brook of Cana and it ended at the sea. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the sons of Ephraim according to their families. So in other words, it's not just one great blob of land and just, you know, if that's your tribe, just live wherever you want to live. It's the, the, the land grant itself now has to be subdivided into the clans, into the families. And it's not just, you know, willy-nilly wherever an Ephraimite wants to live. According to their families, together with the cities which were set apart for the sons of Ephraim in the midst of the inheritance of the sons of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages. But we notice a failure here. They did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites live in the midst of Ephraim to this day, and they became forced laborers. This kind of seems to be the default. This kind of seems to be where they just kind of, okay, fine, you can be our slaves. You know, we can't conquer you, so you can be our slaves. What kind of slaves do you think they are when they know they can't be conquered? You know? I mean, I imagine they weren't the most cooperative slaves and, you know, they did whatever work they felt like and, and um, whatever work they, they, you know, felt like they needed to do and not be attacked again. But uh, living there in the midst of the Jewish people is, um, you know, for anybody that's satanically motivated, satanically minded, that's an idol worshiper at heart anyway, the idea of these religious hoity-toities coming in, uh, you know, might be amusing to some of them. Like, okay, you know, Welcome to the neighborhood, and, and uh, well, you know, you're going to come over to the dark side soon enough. And they're right. They are absolutely right. And God had warned them about that, that the customs and practices and, and religious uh, proclivities of, of these Canaanite people was absolutely horrendous. That's why God ordered their destruction. That's why the land vomited them up from, I mean, everything gross, and, and you can imagine in, in child sacrifice and the fornication and the homosexuality and the, and the just unhuman activities that they were engaged in. All right. And some of that I'm sure was demonically motivated. The demons, the fallen angels, they consider us to be puny, finite, you know, useless dust creatures anyway. So I imagine uh, they just view us as, as playthings. All right, which gets us now to chapter 17 in the Manasseh territory. 
So essentially, Ephraim's territory was north of Judah's between the Jordan and the Mediterranean. Some of Ephraim's cities will fall within the land boundaries designated for Manasseh. And so it almost seems like this is going to be a a situation where two tribes have some overlap, where two tribes have some uh, mutual, uh, you know, uh, land. And and they are brother tribes anyway, uh, within the tribe of Joseph. So evidently that's not a problem. Ephraim fell short in driving out all the Canaanites in their portion of the land. And so because of that, there's long-term consequences even to this day, down to the time frame where the book of Joshua is being finished. All right, now we have Manasseh in chapter 17, specifically half Manasseh. This was the lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was firstborn of Joseph to Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were allotted Gilead and Bashan because he was a man of war. And that's the part that was to the east, the land of Gilead, the land of Bashan. So the lot was made for the rest of the sons of Manasseh, according to their families, for the sons of Abiezer, and for the sons of Helak, and for the sons of Azriel, and for the sons of Shechem, and for the sons of Hefer, and for the sons of Shemitah, these were the male descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, according to their family. So does that seem kind of lopsided, that the Machir clan we call half Manasseh? And, uh, and then we got all these other heads of families on the western half. Remember Zelophehad. However, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, only daughters. These were the names of his daughters. We saw them in the book of Numbers. We saw them again in the book of Deuteronomy. They are going to inherit as if they were sons because Zelophehad had no sons. Uh, But the stipulation is if they're going to have tribal inheritance, that's fine, but they are going to marry from within their clan so that uh, the land does not pass beyond the, uh, the clan and the tribe. So they came near before Eleazar the priest, before Joshua the son of Nun, before the leaders, saying, Remember, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. Okay, Yes, we remember. Okay, we, we went over this already in the book of Numbers. We remember again from the book of Deuteronomy. And okay, thanks again for the reminder. Very diligent. Yes. The daughters of Zelophehad. All right. So thus there fell ten portions to Manasseh besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is beyond the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance among his sons, and the land of Gilead belonged to the rest of the sons of Manasseh. All right, then in verse 7 and following, we're going to get the territory of Manasseh, north of Ephraim, that yellow region we were looking at earlier. All right, so the borders of Manasseh ran from Asher to Michmanath, which was east of Shechem. Then the border went southward to the inhabitants of En-Tapua. And the land of Tapua belonged to Manasseh, but Tapua on the border of Manasseh belonged to the sons of Ephraim. Why do they do that? It's the same thing I ask myself every time. Why is Kansas City in Missouri? That's just wrong, okay? Either move across to Kansas and call yourself Kansas City, Kansas, which is actually a place. It's just a different place. But Kansas City, Missouri? Are you kidding me? All right. I got friends there. It's a nice place. 
So, um, yeah, the land of Tapua belonged to Manasseh, but Tapua on the border of Manasseh belonged to the sons of Ephraim. And, and yeah, there's that overlap between these brother tribes. And the border went down to the brook of Cana, southward of the brook. These cities belonged to Ephraim along the cities of Manasseh. And the border of Manasseh was on the north side of the brook, and it ended at the sea. The south side belonged to Ephraim, and the north side to Manasseh, and the sea was their border. That's actually pretty handy. Just have a, have a little river there that divides. Okay, this is my side, that's your side. You stay over there, I stay over here. Okay. But then there's also some overlap with Issachar, with Asher and Issachar. So they reached to Asher on the north and to Issachar on the east. In Issachar and Asher, so now we're talking about these regions up here. As we zoom in, so there's Issachar, and here's Asher on the coast. Zebulun's in the middle. And there's going to be some overlap there with territory that belongs to Manasseh, even though it kind of falls within parameters that should be Issachar or Asher. So in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Bethshin and its towns, and Iblim and its towns, and the inhabitants of Dor and its towns, and the inhabitants of Endor and its towns. And the, uh, what's up with Endor? Okay. Star Wars fans? The Ewoks of Endor? The moon of Endor? Different Endor, okay? But there is a witch in Endor that uh, King Saul will go to and try to bring up the, the uh, spirit of Samuel. Okay? You guys are smart. You're, you're putting these things together. Uh, the inhabitants of Tanakh and its towns, the inhabitants of Megiddo and its towns. The third is Napheth. Okay, so Megiddo we know because of Armageddon, Har Megiddo. But the sons of Manasseh, just like with uh, Ephraim, again we find ourselves with problems. The sons of Manasseh could not take possession of these cities because the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. Well, why is that a problem? You were told to remove them. And it came about when the sons of Israel became strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Like, is that somehow a consolation? Is that somehow second best? You were told to remove them. And in part, I have to wonder, you know, the, that initial failure with the Gibeonites, that initial failure where Joshua himself blew it and didn't inquire the Lord and, and decided, okay, we can't, we can't drive these people out now. So, Joshua himself almost said, I mean, he did. He set a precedent there where he said, all right, you guys are going to be forced labor now. Put them to work as cutters of wood and, and, and drawers of water and whatnot. Um, and, and, and it's almost like that failure on Joshua's part becomes the pattern. And all these other tribes now are just going to go that way. They're just going to say, well, you know, it's what Joshua did. I guess that's what we'll do. We're not going to conquer these cities, so let's just... Uh, you know, let's put them to forced labor when we are strong enough to do so. But they did not drive them out completely. All right. So Manasseh fell short in driving out all the Canaanites in their portion of the land. Now, as if that's not enough, when we look at verse 14 here, 
the two tribes of Joseph, that's Ephraim and Manasseh, file a complaint with Joshua that their land grant was too small. So the sons of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, why have you given me only one lot and one portion for an inheritance since I am a numerous people whom the Lord has thus far blessed? You see, it's a complaint. And, and they're complaining to Joshua that he, he doesn't appreciate how special they are to the Lord nearly as much as they appreciate how special they are to the Lord. Obviously, they've done so much for him. Yeah, God owes them. And Joshua really should appreciate them more, especially since he belongs to them. His tribe is the tribe of Ephraim. That's the tribe he spied for. That's the tribe he was born into. And so even though their, their land is generous, uh, they're still not content. What do you call that when the God just blesses you richly by grace and you're a malcontent not appreciating the grace of God that he's given you? We have a term for that? I don't know. I just think it's pathetic. <laughs> okay, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ungrateful it's an ungrateful term. I mean, the, the whole idea of gratitude and, and gratefulness, it, it centers on the recognition of God's grace. And the people that are the least grateful people in the world are the people that have no grace capacity to appreciate that we don't deserve anything except the lake of fire. So let's just accept what God gives us and thank Him for being a God of grace and, uh, and don't complain because your land grant is too small, especially when your land grant is huge. I mean, we're looking at purple and yellow and blue. If anybody should be complaining, it'd be a little Benjamin down in here, or it would be, you know, some of these are kind of tiny. Dan. I mean, Dan already had this tiny little sliver tucked in here, and he couldn't take any of that. We'll get to him next. So, the complaint in verse 14. Then Joshua's answer in verse 15. I love Joshua's answer. Joshua said to them, if you are a numerous people, as you say, uh, go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. You know, rather than complain about the problem, why don't you go solve it? You got enough manpower. You're this great numerous people. Okay. And the sons of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the valley land have chariots of iron, both those who are in Beth Sheen and its towns and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. And now we get to what the real issue is. They don't want to fight. They don't want to fight the giants. They don't want to fight the chariots. They don't want to fight. They just, uh, you know, you just want a, a land they don't have to fight for? What are you talking about? Joshua suggested they could clear some of the forest in their land grant and found additional cities. Okay? I mean, these cities are already there. The cities are there. The houses are there. The fields are there. The, I mean, go take it. God's given it to you. If you don't want to do that, okay, clear the forest and build new cities. So uh, Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a numerous people. You have great power. You shall not have one lot only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it. And to its farthest borders it shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, even though they have chariots of iron, and even though they are strong. Joshua also suggested that they could finish destroying the Canaanites and take those cities. Okay? There's a, 
an idea. How about if you obey what God told you to do? Okay? And, uh, you know, don't come, don't come grumbling to me. All right. So that gets us to the end of chapter 17. And is that it for today? That's it for today. All right. Well, we jumped on that real quick, didn't we? All right. Well, then, in our few minutes remaining, I'm supposed to do some other things. Um, and I guess I need to apologize. I hope nothing I said today was... Um, the, the, the person who corrected my, my Shatim pronunciation on Facebook, thank you for that. I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not holding anything against you, <laughs> okay? I'm just having some fun. So Shatim is fine. I'm going to go with that. And whatever else I mispronounced on this, I just, you know, it is what it is. Um, I did um, show you where you can find those pronunciations if you want to enjoy them, if you want to memorize them, if you want to start employing them uh, significantly. You do right-click the name of the town. Make sure that you have the lemma that's selected because only when you have the lemma selected you're going to have the pronounce button right there. Okay? If you have anything else selected like the selection of Shiloh, then your, your uh, pronunciation disappears because we can pronounce Shiloh. It's pronounced Shiloh. That's an English name. But the Hebrew name underneath Shiloh is what uh, folks have an interest in pronouncing. And so Shiloh in the Hebrew pronunciation, Shiloh, okay? You got that? Shiloh, accent on the O, okay? And so just have tons of fun with that. Do everything you want to do with that. Um, I also need to show you uh, very frequently what I've tended to do. There was a pericope heading in here that bugs me to tears. Let's see if I can find that. Territory of Ephraim, or maybe it's coming up Tuesday night. Territory of Judah, Caleb's request. Okay, so we're not here yet. Remind me when we get to it. These uh, pericope headings. Yes, I'm glad it here. It's called Canaan. Great. Call it Canaan. They're taking the land away from Canaan. Some of the pericope headings, though, refer to it as Palestine. Oh, does that bug me to death? Okay. First of all, it's wrong. And then secondly, it's politically problematic because that's the propaganda name given to the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, after the Romans conquered it. And it's the propaganda name taken up by the, the terrorist organization when they started calling themselves the rightful owners of the land. They called themselves the native Palestinians. And uh, there's a lot of political connections there that become problematic. So we'll see some of that coming up. And I do want to highlight that when we get to it. Also, um, one thing I have failed, I told myself probably 20 times that I wanted to highlight this. Um, very frequently, you've noticed that I tend to open up uh, original languages in parallel columns, kind of like that. And that can get pretty narrow uh, you do have the option to to do it horizontally rather than um, vertically. If you want to do that, that might help. Or rather than just opening up these separate windows, rather than do that, you can use the alpha and omega icon there. This is called the uh, the interlinear panel. And this one might be more useful um, 
Yeah, particularly if you have no intention of just reading the Hebrew text or reading the Greek text, if all you're looking to do is to correlate a word with an original word, then you don't need to have uh, these things in parallel to hunt through there. What you can do instead, go ahead and close that, and instead open up your interlinear panel. And this will open up the panel at the bottom of your Bible window. And you may find that this is far more useful for you. So when you're looking for old and advanced in years and you're looking for, all you have to do is just click the word, Joshua was old, advanced, in years, okay? And whatever, whatever uh, word you want to study, just click it and down below here is where you're going to find all the information that you could possibly want. This is the information, by the way, that does come up when, uh, when you right-click it. It's the information that shows up over here but if that's too small to read and you want a, a larger format, you can find it right in there. So um, take a look for that alpha and omega icon that's right there that does apply to the interlinears, the options that are available. This is called the interlinear panel. There's also an inline, so this is called reverse interlinear panel. If you don't like that, you can actually put it up in the text itself. Okay. So you can actually nest it underneath here. And some people prefer that. And, and really, the, the software is designed to be so flexible that however you think, however you study, whatever you like the best, um, you know, if you want to put the roots in there, if you want to put the Strong's numbers in there, whatever you want to put in there, you, know, you can toggle those options. And you can have them in there as the inline reverse interlinear. Or if you don't like the inline, then you can put it down in a panel at the bottom the reverse interlinear panel, okay? So have some fun with that. Also, I realized in giving some of these Logos tutorials that I'm probably 12 steps past where a lot of folks are. Um, some folks waited from January to February to March, and then they said, you know, I think I'm going to try that Logos stuff out and see if I can get it to work right. And great, glad, you, uh, glad you're on board, but you're kind of behind the, the curve now on some of the initial setup, okay? And so um, what I think I need to start doing is actually scheduling some days where we can get on GoToMeeting, when you can join on your computer, and then where I can walk you through the steps. Because, uh, frankly, a lot of times you just start up your program and you're looking at a screen like that, and it's just, you're like, uh, what now, okay? John 3.16, <laughs> you know? I how do I find a Bible verse and do I even own a Bible? What is all this stuff? This gets cluttered. Okay? So I rarely look at this. That's not true. I look at this occasionally. Because this has your prayer list, this has your reading plan, this has your daily devotions. Um, I got three of them that I like. Anyway, that's your home page. And if you don't want to start with the home page, don't start with the home page. Start with a blank screen. You do you. Okay, and, and, and I want to try to stress that just because I do it a certain way, um, I'm, I'm crazy. Okay, I might think my thought process is not normal. So uh, instead of trying to follow my thought process, use your own thought process. Okay, so let me start with this. Um, start with the, um, the program settings, which you're going to find right up here. Uh, program settings. You got a lot of options here too, including scaling. You know, some older folks might want some higher percentages on the program scaling. Um, but program settings, let's start with this. 
And let me just give you the top ones right here, right now. I'll get this done before you go to bed tonight. When you start your program, um, come here where it says play sounds and make sure it says no. All right? Because there really aren't a lot of sounds. What, what they're talking about here is the little jingle at startup. And the, the little startup jingle. It's obnoxious. Okay? And especially when you're already five minutes into class and somebody out there in the audience has this little Logos startup jingle going. All right? Glad you're using Logos. But go ahead and turn play sounds to no. Okay? That's the first thing. Then um, come back up here to at startup. At startup. You, you tell Logos what to do when you start the program. Okay? I like blank layout. Blank layout at startup. That means when I start the program, that's what I get. I get a blank layout. I just get the toolbar at the top and I got nothing on the, on the layout. Because there's no telling what I'm going to do on any particular day. All right? So, uh, but other people, that's not, for, that's not for them. They might know exactly what they're going to be doing on a particular day. Because they're going to do the same thing every day. So, uh, again, in your program settings, decide what you want to have happen at startup. You can either open a blank layout, you can open your most recent layout, um, or you can open any named layout that you want. Okay? For example, I got one down here I used to start all the time called Pulpit Display. And there's Pulpit Streaming. There we go. Pulpit Streaming. And my pulpit streaming layout was, was great for the pulpit streaming we would do last year and the year before, the pulpit streaming we would do when we had um, a, sli- a PowerPoint slideshow running and then Logos with a floating Bible window and other uh, configurations on Logos there. The pulpit streaming layout was ideal. And it was ideal for this laptop in this pulpit. I never used it at the house. There's no point in using it at the house. Why would I use that at the house? So you have different uh, layouts, you have different options, and one of the neat things too, um, you can do open your most recent layout, local, means the most recent layout that this particular machine used when you, before you shut it down, it'll just pick up right where you left off. The most recent layout, the most recent time it was turned on, that's what it's going to go right back to the next time you turn it on. That's your local layout or any layout. This means any computer you have with Logos on it. The last time you were studying at the house, the last time you were studying at work, the last time you were studying on the plane, the last time you had your tablet open or you were looking on your phone. You can have layouts in all those places. Or, honestly, if you really love that homepage, select the homepage at startup. I think that's the default when you first load the program, and so that's what a lot of you are stuck with when you're first starting it up, and some of you have expressed an irritation with that. So just take it off of home, put it on blank layout. That might be the best thing to do at this point of time. All right, so we'll let that go for now. Four more minutes. All right. If you, have you found your Bible yet? Is that still a problem? Trying to find your Bibles, okay? So you have them there. Let me just show you, this is your library. This icon up here is your library button. And I would recommend, just while you're learning it, I mean, you can click it and it'll drop down. 
That's not as, while you're still new with this and you're trying to learn the features, don't just do that. Go ahead and click it and drag it down and fill your whole screen with it. Fill your whole screen with your library. And this will open up the spreadsheet with all the different information about your books. All right? And then come over here and, and toggle your, uh, your filter panel open like that. And just select Bible. Okay? That way you're taking away the commentaries, you're taking away the dictionaries, you're taking away the journals, you're taking away everything that's not a Bible. So now you're, you're limiting the number of resources that you're looking at. And then do yourself another favor and click English. So you just took away your Greek Bibles, your Hebrew Bibles, your, your other things. Now you've got your list of English Bibles. And if you have the basic installation that comes with being a Faith Life member, then uh, this will be a fairly manageable list. You'll have, you know, six or eight English Bibles. Okay? Maybe not even that. I forget now. And so now that you find these, pick out the ones that are uh, the top Bibles for you. Okay? And, and then prioritize them. Okay, mark them, bookmark them. If, the, if, if one Bible is your go-to Bible, the New American Standard, the, the Lexham English Bible, the, uh, the Holman, the, whatever it is, I mean, if that is your King James Bible, if you are an 1890 Darby guy and you like the 1890 Darby Bible, whatever it is, just find the Bible you want, like uh, the Lexham English Bible, okay? Find that Bible that you want and... Um, couple of things. First of all, when you right-click it, you can prioritize this resource. I do recommend that. Go ahead and prioritize it. That's going to put it on your, on your short list. Okay? Here on your short list. This prefer these resources. I really recommend, take your five favorite Bibles and put them here at the top. Sort them. New American Standard, Christian Standard Bible, New King James, Old King James, Lexham English Bible, uh, a couple of the other obscure ones that I like. Put those all there at the top. And those, that's going to benefit you for a whole lot of other features coming up. All right, then you can close that. This is the prioritize resource panel. Um, then the last thing I would recommend, click and drag, grab it from your uh, catalog there, put it up here on your toolbar, you know, drop it somewhere up there. And then there it is, okay? And that way you don't have to go find it again. You don't have to open up my library. You can, uh, you can leave my library closed because you put the shortcut, shortcut button on your toolbar. All you got to do is just go up there, click it. Your Bible opens right up. That's the fastest way to get to your Bible, okay? Just have it sitting on your toolbar and deal with it from there. Anyway, is some of that stuff helpful? Do you want more of that? Can we do more classes like that? All right, we'll have to plan for that. And uh, we'll just plan a time where you don't have to drive in from wherever. Well, in fact, it's better that you don't. It's better that you're at home on your computer looking at your system. And then not only can we interact on GoToMeeting and we can have you know, a face-to-face video conference, but also um, you would have an opportunity to share your screen so that I can see what you're looking at on your, on your screen and then be able to help you through some of these things that are maybe harder to find. So um, anyway... So yeah, thank you for that. I'll, uh, we'll find some time to do that. We'll, we'll spot some, um, some Monday nights or some Saturdays or some, some other uh, occasions whereby we can be doing that. All right. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for this time in your word. We thank you, Father, for, uh, for 13 completed Sundays. And now we've got uh, three more this week coming up. 
And that'll wrap up 13 weeks of Through the Bible. One complete quarter, Father. And I just uh, thank you. Uh, we got uh, one quarter down, three more to go. And, and uh, like I said earlier, Father, I'm having the time of my life. This, is, this has been a privilege and a blessing and a joy and, and a thrill, Father. And so uh, thank you for uh, not only the Saints of Austin Bible Church, but also introducing us to, to folks around the country and around the world that are joining with us on this journey, that are reading along, that are watching the videos. Uh, Father, uh, we're thankful to have them with us. And, um, and I do pray, Father, as, uh, as we get to know them better, as they get to know us better, that um, uh, we won't misunderstand one another when we're, when we're joking about certain things. Just, uh, just be faithful, Father, and uh, allow grace to be uh, the order of the day. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.